good morning, ladies and gentlemen. And first of all, a very warm welcome to the second day of this uh, conference from Hunter to Helmand. I'm sure most of you are aware that this is one of a series of events being organized in the Royal College of Surgeons to commemorate the centenary uh, of the First World War. And I'd like to begin by thanking Sam Alberti and the Museums and Archives team uh, for putting together uh, an exceptional program, uh, together with Mick Crumplin, who's honorary curator. Uh, and also, I'd like to say a very special thanks to Haley Kruger, who you met on the way in, who's been responsible for the smooth organization uh, of today and of yesterday. Uh, and a big thanks to her. Now, I'm sure most of you have, are aware or, and have indeed seen the exhibition War, Art and Surgery uh, that uh, opened fairly recently in the museum. Uh, but if you haven't seen it, I do commend you to try and find time to go up. And linked to that, I draw your attention to a magnificent book uh, which details the exhibits uh, in, that, in that exhibition. Now, I'm required just to talk about fire regulations. Um, there will not be an alarm this morning, so a, a practice alarm. So if you hear a bell ringing, it probably means we should leave. Um, and the exits are on the side, front and the back on both sides. Um, and the assembly point is out in the front of the college uh, opposite in Lincoln's Inn Fields. Now we had an outstanding day yesterday, and I know many of you were here for that. And we were taken through the evolution of, of warfare and the care of those affected by warfare, from John Hunter in Belle Isle up to the Great War. And the one thing that the First World War wasn't, which many had hoped, was the war to end all wars. And so today, we move on to the Second World War uh, and to more recent conflicts. And we're very uh, fortunate in having three speakers in this uh, session this morning uh, that are, uh, have enormous experience and expertise in their various fields. Um, and uh, the plan for the morning is that they will speak for 30 minutes and we will then have discussion. And certainly from the pattern of yesterday, there will be uh, plenty of, uh, to talk about uh, after each presentation. So with no further more uh, ado from me, uh, I would like to welcome the first speaker this morning, which is, uh, who is Professor Joanna Bork who has published uh, many books and uh, is going to talk to us about the experience of surgery during the Second World War. Professor Burke. Thanks. Um, I'm really, really very honored uh, to be able to speak to you today. What I want to talk about is some, actually of some of my new work on this Second World War, um, pain. Uh, bodily pain in wartime is, I think, unique. Unlike non-war settings, pain in wartime is three things at once. It is purposefully inflicted, it is resolutely public, and it's relentlessly acute. Surgeons are placed in a situations where um, it's often difficult for, from those, or very different, from those that they had previously experienced in civilian contexts. And they often, of course, struggle to come to grips with um, the drama around them. Furthermore, the weaponry 
of war, what causes the injury, what causes the pain, can change so dramatically between conflicts that it can seem very difficult to learn any lesson. And constantly surgeons, of course, are grappling with that issue. And the Second World War, of course, was no exception. Since the seriousness of wounds is primarily or largely a consequence of the amount of energy that is transferred from the missile to the body, comparing the velocity at which missiles travel before hitting their target is, of course, one of the most telling um, indicators of the formidable challenges faced by surgeons in 1939. Now, prior, of course, and we've heard about this yesterday, prior to the invention of gunpowder, missiles rarely traveled at more than seven, several hundred feet per second. <clears throat> Between the 14th century and the beginning of the 20th century, this increased to 2,000 feet per second and then jumped to 4,000 feet per second, of course, just in time for the First World War. However, even if we ignore um, the atomic bombs, during the Second World War, the velocity of um, associated with gunpowder and related agents soared to 7,000 feet per second. And of course, bomb fragments can travel at 9,000 feet per second and may reach as high as 24,000 feet per second in certain circumstances. The crucial point, I think, in reminding ourselves of these figures is that once missiles exceed a certain velocity, generally considered to be 2,000, feet per second, they create devastating temporary cavities inside human bodies. And these temporary cavities, of course, wreak extreme havoc. Such shock waves can exert pressures of up to 3,000 pounds to the square inch and in volume can, it, can create a temporary cavity that is 27 or th to 30 times larger than the permanent cavity created along the actual track of the missile. At higher velocities, of course, even fully jacketed missiles will disintegrate inside the body, causing what is euphemistically called lead splatter. The sub-atmospheric um, pressure also, of course, sucks clothes and dirt into the wound, um, contaminating them. Fractures typically or routinely occur along um, at, at some distance from the track of the missile, sending out fragments themselves, which themselves become secondary missiles. In the words of Ella, the surgeon Ella Broster, in his survey of war surgery, published in the British Medical Journal, 1941. He wrote, the modern bomb is more destructive than maiming. Its casing, casing is comparatively thin and its terrific blast breaks into numerous small hot fragments which spread out fanwise in a more or less horizontal direction with low trajectory. As a result, surgeons during the Second World War rapidly learned that the wounds they were seeing were dramatically different from previous ones and were, in fact, deceptive, requiring very different treatment.
Colonel James Walton, Sir, Walter, Sir James, reflected on this. He compared, of course, the wounds from the First World War, sec, um, sorry, from Boer War, First World War and Second World War. Um, observing that during the Boer War, bullet wounds were tended to be clean penetrations in the sandy, dry environment, minimized infection. During the First World War, a large proportion of wounds were due, of course, to fragments of high explosive shells and shrapnel bullets, and they quickly became infected. Um, around 100,000 British soldiers died of complications due to gas gangrene during that conflict. But during the Second World War, the problem of infection continued, although not, of course, in all um, uh, uh, campaigns. But more importantly, the explosives were, in, again in Walton's words, of a much higher power, and the fragments of shells or, or bombs are thrown with greater force. As a consequence, there was a serious mismatch between the surface appearance of these wounds and the injury to deep tissues. As he explained, he wrote, in the beginning of the war, there was a tendency to treat apparently small wounds with an antiseptic dressing. But time after time, I had been struck with the wide extent of laceration of the underlying tissues when there was a skin wound, perhaps only a quarter of an inch in diameter. I have now come to regard it as a constant rule that any penetrating wound in any part of the body due to a piece of high explosive must be opened and explored. So what you get during the Second World War is shock becoming the dreaded killer. Now, one of the surgeons I've been doing a lot of work with I mean, in his archive who struggled to understand, the, um, understand pain during the Second World War was, of course, the very famous um, uh, Henry K. Beecher. In the Countway Library um, in Boston, where I've spent six months working through his papers, there's a really interesting, I think, faded um, typescript um, entitled Battlefield Notes of the Wounded, which is written by him. Um, in this piece, this, um, this is the unpublished version, he sought, to, he sought to put the sufferings of wounded soldiers on a scientific basis and set out what he was to later call the psychophysics, the psychophysics of pain or the quantification of the subjective feeling of pain. This task was only possible, he argued, if scientists were allowed access to a vast number of severely wounded patients, something that was only possible in wartime where, in his words, nature provides bolder experiments than one would ever dare perform in the laboratory. Now, this rather brusque um, professor of anesthesia research at Harvard University and anesthetist at the Manchester General Hospital was, in fact, I think, a very unlikely advocate for the soldier patient. He was very later to become very famous for his work on the definition of death. I'm sure many people here know this work. And, of course, his um, controversial exposure of the extent of human experimentation, which, incidentally, is... Um, kind of an irony since after his death it was revealed that um, he in fact had been involved in CIA drug experiments on prisoners. 
um, in the 1950s. When the Second World War was declared, he was in his mid-30s and had recently been honored by being appointed to the first chair in anesthesia in America. Now, from all accounts, um, Beecher had a massive chip on his shoulder. He was the son of Henry Angeston, a night watchman and carpenter from Kansas City, but he had adopted the illustrious surname Beecher when he moved to Boston. Some say that, or he said, I should say, that Beecher was a distant relative, but I think it's probably more likely that um, it was a way of him linking himself to the illustrious Beecher family of the 19th century, um, Henry Ward Beecher, you may know, know of. Um, whatever the case, Beecher was described, even by his closest friends, as a showman, perfectionist, a man of controversy who seems to enjoy a good and serious fray. He could be gracious and charming in social circumstances, but generally it was said that in science and politics he was a street fighter. When America joined the war effort, Beecher threw himself into research conducted on behalf of the National Research Council's Subcommittee on Surgical Shock, as well as their Subcommittee on Anesthesia. Now, the chief problem that both of these subcommittees came to time and again was their inability to get accurate data about what was actually taking place in war zones. It wasn't long before Beecher was actively lobbying, um, uh, lobbying uh, politicians, in fact, anyone who would listen, to be sent to the front lines. As he, as he said, he felt that if newspaper men should be given freedom to work at the front, then it should also be possible to send medical investigators. He urged Dr. Um, Richards, chairman of the Committee on Medical Research to, um, in Washington, D.C., to remember that there were complex, difficult problems which will be solved only with great luck in time to be help of any help to the war. Surgeons required, quote, an abundance of clinical shock material, far more, I believe, than can be ob obtained in civil life. He urged Richard to sponsor a unit to study shock in the field at an active front, reassuring him that just one, just one individual armed with nothing more than a watch, a stethoscope, a blood pressure apparatus, and adequate clinical material, meaning wounded bodies, was all that was required. He claimed not to wish to criticize the research that was taking place in America, but insisted that many of the urgent practical problems concerned with the relationship of anesthesia to shock can only be settled on, settled on human subjects where there is an abundance of material at one of the active fronts, and it took until June 1943 for his appointment to be approved. Now, it was a very steep learning curve for this young anesthetist. War medicine, of course, was a matter of making do. As surgeon James Walton pointed out in 1942, the most valuable asset a medical man can possess in times of war is the power of adaptability. 
in all circumstances, the regimental medical officer must exercise his ingenuity and remember that much can be done with very little. Beecher, of course, though, was up to the challenge. Indeed, he reveled in it. He was to serve in a number of different theatres, including at Anzo, where he complained that for 75 days, the shelling has never stopped for more than 60 seconds, day or night, month after month. Now, in uh, that typescript, Battlefield's um, note, Battlefield Note of the Wounded, probably written in 1943, while he was conducting research um, here, it was to reform, of course, the basis for his research, um, basically from that time until his death in 1976. Indeed, sections of it were subsequently rewritten in formal prose and published in highly esteemed medical journals. And I'm sure people, I know people in this room have read some of those, those accounts. Um, in his unpublished transcript, however, Beecher allows himself some rhetorical flourishes, which are, of course, absent in his other uh, works. The typescript actually begins with a vivid evocation of frontline surgery. Its first um, line was, watch the blackout, the sergeant called in an exasperated tone, and it was followed by a description of his experiences on, of the beachhead with, quote, heavy rain slicing over the wet canvas of the admitting tent and litter bearers stumbling against each other as they stooped to deposit their wounded soldiers. But Beecher really was concerned with one, we, the centerpiece, I should say, is one man. Um, believing that this one case study epitomized what um, lessons surgeons could learn about the war. And the young soldier he named Holmes, aged 19, a husky fellow who five hours earlier had been wounded by a mortar shell and had not been given any morphine for at least four hours. He had bloody clothing and a meat cleaver-like wound along his backbone. Holmes was struggling so much that it was impossible to examine him and in a weak voice could be heard saying, you bloody fools, let me up. Can't you see I'm lying on my rifle? Get me out of here and off these mucking things. Although it was discovered that his lung was exposed, eight of his ribs cut in two, and one rib puncturing the diaphragm and kidney, Beecher and the other medics were unable to examine him because he was manic with pain. Aware that morphine had failed to help in other cases, Beecher speculated that in fact what was needed was simply a sedative. Um, Holmes immediately quietened down and rapidly fell asleep. And for Beecher, the message for this, of this case was clear. A small amount of, very small amount of sedative that he had, the, the soldier had been given, controlled, would not have been able to do anything to help control the pain, but it did control the hysteria governed by fear, generated by fear and complicated by the battle wound. It was enough to save this man's life. For Beecher, this was 
the key, uh, um, the key thing in his, um, in his philosophy subsequently. Suffering could actually override mental, uh, sorry, mental suffering could override physical pain. In ministering to the wounded, the belief that wounds were inevitably associated with pain and that the more extensive the wound, the more worse the pain was wrong. So along with a team of other researchers, he set out to study the subjective responses um, of pain. Beecher and his team examined soldiers suffering from five categories of wounds. They limited their subjects to those who had not received any pain relief for up to between five and seven hours, were not in traumatic shock, and those who were clear mentally. And they were surprised to find that except for men with head wounds, nearly all were mentally alert. Shortly after these men arrived at the forward um, hospital, they were asked, as you lie there, are you feeling any pain? If they said yes, they were asked to rate the pain, slight, moderate, severe. They were also asked if they wanted something to relieve their pain. And one third of um, those, these badly wounded men said they were experiencing no pain and a quarter said they were receiving slight, fifth, moderate, and a quarter severe pain. Beecher noted that although the question as to whether pain relief therapy was wanted reminded patients that it was available for the asking, only a quarter of the men said yes to this. In Beecher's words, three quarters of the badly wounded men as they arrived in the forward hospital, although they had received no morphine, have so little pain that they do not want pain relief medication, even though the question, um, raised, the question raised reminded them that such was available for the asking. Um, he observed that the issue was not that the shocked had generally lower sensitivity to pain. After all, these patients were complaining very bitterly of thirst, and if um, a surgeon, a physician, gave them a bad injection or uh, was, were clumsy, they would swear, so they were feeling pain, but instead, they were not feeling the pain of their wounds. Their suffering was modified, if not eradicated, by the context. Beecher observed that these were all war casualties, and he speculated it would be very different, for it was different for wounded civilians. He explained that while the family automobile in a car crash can cause wounds that mimic many of the lesions of warfare, the civilian accident marks the beginning of disaster for him. In contrast, the for the soldier, his wound suddenly releases him from an exceedingly dangerous environment, one filled with fatigue, discomfort, anxiety, fear, and a real danger of death, and gives him a ticket to the safety of the hospital. His troubles are over, or so he thinks they are. So in other words, he concluded that pain is an experience that was subject to modification by very many different factors. Wounds received during strenuous physical exercise, um, the excitement of games often go unnoticed, and the same was true of wounds received during fighting or during anger. Strong emotion, he concluded, blocks pain. And this is why he argued that um, the wounded required the medical officer to pay attention not only to the physiological wound, but also to the patient's emotional and mental state. 
Now, of course, Beecher was not, of course, the only um, um, surgeon to make these comments. It had been a well-known fact for, for ever. Um, even Lucretius um, described this kind of event. What is different in this context is simply that it was during the Second World War that surgeons anesthetists and physicians actually carried out systematic um, studies into this phenomenon. And there's quite a number of other studies that we, we can talk about. <clears throat> this disjunction between the degree of wounding and the sensation of pain became a commonplace observation in war memoirs of the period. <clears throat> Indeed, it became um, a kind of um, uh, a regular thing that was discussed in practically every single memoir involving, um, Second World War memoir involving uh, wounding. As one wounded fighter pilot put it in his memoir, his wounded arm seemed as completely dissociated from my person as a monkey on a stick. In another case, shrapnel penetrating soldier felt just like a, a prodding finger. Another person, it was knocking my elbow, like knocking it against a stone wall like being hit by pieces of mud. Um, and there's lots of examples of this. In this sense, I want to argue that Second World War memoirs actually are much closer to those of the First World War than to ones that came later. Like First World War uh, memoirs of wounding, authors typically denied pain and valorized stoical endurance or sardonic understatement when pain was mentioned. This, of course, was a world away, or is a world away, from memoirs from the Korean War or the war in Vietnam onwards. Um, and, in fact, even more noticeable in uh, current war memoirs, where silent endurance, which we see in the First World War and Second World War memoirs, is replaced by gory evocation and um, physical suffering seen as a test of manliness. But the tone in the uh, later ones is defiant and aggressive rather than, during the First and Second World War memoirs, stoic or resigned. In the latter accounts, pain was even presented as an excuse for further bloodthirstiness, again, as opposed to the resignation um, in these other ones. In other words, in these um, earlier memoirs, pain involved a submission, um, whereas in the later ones, they involve an explosion of aggression. But to return to, to Beecher and his manuscript uh, version of Battlefield Notes of the Wounded, throughout his life, Beecher believed that the surgical lessons of the war was invaluable for peacetime as well. And he was strongly opposed to the view put by Lieutenant Colonel uh, W.C. Wilson in a very important uh, report on wounding, 1943, that wartime surgery was in fact corrupting. Wilson had worried about the effect on younger surgeons of constant familiarity with contaminated, mutilating wounds and considerably modified aseptic techniques, citing Harvey Cushing's view that it's an awful business, probably the worst possible training in surgery for a wound, for a wound man and ruinous for the carefully acquired technique of the ulster. Beecher disagreed. 
in his words in this, um, in this particular paper, the consequences to the human body are the same, whether the artery is severed by a shell fragment or a broken windscreen. There is a university, universality in the cause and effect relationships, a universality too in the principles of treatment. He lamented that the lessons of war were forgotten. In his words, the principles and procedures evolved during this World War II concerning the treatment of the wounded are not yet an adequate part of medical practice. It will be tragic if medical historians can look back on the World War II period and write it off as a time when so little was remembered. And one of the things he was concerned with in his entire life that was so little remembered was this disconnect between the severity of the wound and the feeling of pain for the patient. It took until the gate control theory of pain, 1965, um, which introduced this notion of the gating mechanism in the dorsal horns of the spinal cord that allowed the perception of, of pain to be modified um, for Beach's insight that sensory, cognitive, affective, and motivational processes um, influenced people's experience of pain to be taken seriously. And of course, it wasn't until 1977 that the International Association for the Study of Pain endorsed that definition, the most influential still, definition of pain as an unpleasant sensual and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage or described in terms of such damage. But Beecher himself, famous for being brusque and a street fighter, ended this, um, his, uh, his paper, his transcript, with a remarkably, I think, sentimental paragraph. He wrote, <clears throat> sometimes we hear the American soldier criticized as a patient. Always this came from someone who dealt with the man at the base hospital in the rear weeks or months after his injury, when a long period of discomfort and pain and worry may sometimes have made him, him angry. For our part, those of us who worked at the front are bound to acknowledge the extraordinary spirit of the newly wounded men. They did all they could to help. But of course, by that he meant all they did to help um, surgeons understand shock and pain. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Burke, for getting our day off to such an excellent start. You've given us a, a very vivid insight in what it is to be involved in the battle situation uh, and to be wounded in that situation, certainly in the initial and immediate, uh, immediate phase. Um, Questions, please. I think we have microphones available, so I'd ask you if you could wait until you have the microphone. Thank you. A fascinating lecture. Uh, the question I want to put is, how much perception of pain is culturally related? Um, and quote one or two things from the literature. I always remember a study of uh, the perception of pain in migraine. And as you well know, all of us who are migraine sufferers um, uh, rejoice in the fact that it's only a, a, an indication of your intelligence and status in society. Um, this study carried out um, on migraine showed that actually everybody 
in society, all uh, classes suffered from migraine, but only the intelligent complained about it. Um, and I just wonder, going on to the military side, I seem to recall uh, some evidence uh, taken from Indian soldiers that Sikhs, notoriously tough, um, virtually never complained about pain, and some others did, and as a result, the Sikhs, although experiencing pain, didn't get analgesia. Yeah. And the final sort of quote I want to make uh, relates to my uh, own position as a surgeon in the north of England, and uh, running a tertiary referral unit. And it seemed to us that patients from Wigan didn't experience pain like anybody else. We used to call them Wigan Wonders, uh, because they came in with the most appalling uh, uh, problems after abdominal surgery, and really very rarely required analgesia, even though it was on offer. So the question is, um, could some of the findings be explained by a, a cultural uh, position? Excellent. Look, thanks so much. Um, there's a whole chapter exactly on that topic in the story of pain, because, of course, I mean, you're completely right. Um, perception of pain, um, not only perception of pain, but also, of course, the comportment, the required comportment of the body in pain differs vastly um, by, by, by what, cult culture, um, by region, um, what is expected. People in pain are expected to, and follow certain, if you like, scripts of pain if they are to receive um, the appropriate or, or sympathy, appropriate medication or sympathy. And patients themselves do perform pain in particular ways in order to get the, that kind of sympathy or that kind of um, response. And these are culturally determined. Um, a really interesting example about this, the Sikh um, uh, patients, it's completely true. There's been a lot of research done on, particularly in a war context, on the way different ethnic groups respond to pain and therefore um, the, um, the different levels of analgesics and anesthetics that they are actually given. But we don't actually even have to look at um, wartime to, to see that. I mean, even today, we, there's wonderful evidence, and I, I quote a lot actually in the last chapter of this book, wonderful evidence that even today, different groups of people in hospitals are receiving vastly different levels of analgesia and or anesthetics because of their cultural ex, um, ways of expressing pain. So an example of this would be Chinese patients of, again, Indian patients who are not so expressive in, in their uh, pain comportment in the way they, their gestures and their facial gest gestural languages and are getting um, less um, pain relief. The other thing is, of course, pain is not at all democratic. Um, dem uh, you know, what is pain? You mentioned class aspects. What is pain for one group of people in society is just normal for another group. An example here, of course, is for manual laborers, lower back pain is not pain, it's just life. It's what body feels like. Um, so there are also those kinds of, of differences which, of course, are cultural. And a lot of the book um, actually it looks at metaphors of pain that patients use. And what you see there is you see that different metaphors are being used by different groups of people within society. Um, and of course, those groups that are using the more uh, evocative metaphors are getting different kinds of treatment. Thank you. Um, Professor Adams.
I worked in Beecher's department for two years, so Ooh. I got to know him very well. And I think you've given a masterly description of this very complex person and his work. Now, he was professor of research in anesthesia. In fact, as you pointed out, most of his research, so-called research, mm -hmm. much of it is observation rather than research, yep. um, was, was done outside the field of anesthesia. He was a very poor clinical anaesthetist, and there were numerous occasions when we had to, <laughs> he was. We had to rescue him yes. and his patients from mm -hmm. situations he should never have got into. <laughs> anyway, yes. my, my question is this. Um, some of his anaesthetic publications have not really stood the test of time, and I wonder to what extent mm -hmm. these pain observations um, over a period now of, what, 50 years, mm -hmm. Uh, how much have they been validated yeah. by subsequent work, uh -huh. and have they been shown to, uh, you know, to be valid or, or not? Can, can you enlighten us on that, please? Yeah, thank you. I need to talk to you <laughs> about Beecher, <laughs> because I've, I've read, I've even read his love letters. <laughs> um, and believe, oh, I shouldn't say it. Um, <laughs> um, Beecher, a complex guy, uh, really, I think, tormented myself, I, 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 and not a, not a very pleasant, he doesn't come across in his, in his unpublished stuff as a very pleasant person, and not a very good anaesthetist, um, as you correctly pointed out. Um, Beecher, of course, wasn't the only one. And in fact, the long version of this paper, I look at five others who did similar um, observations during the Second World War. And they all came to more or less similar conclusions. I think what's interesting, at least for me as an historian, is why is it that they are coming, more or less, they're agreeing, more or less, um, and yet similar studies carried out in more contemporary um, military conflicts, uh, combat, are showing very different things. And I think that that, that is a real issue for, um, for the question, uh, the first question about how the men themselves think they ought to um, respond, what they ought to be doing in these circumstances. And certainly, if you look at the material from the war in Vietnam onwards, um, they're not at all quiet, they are demanding pain, they are swearing, they are extremely aggressive. Um, so a very, very different kind of, of, of um, response to pain. And I think this is much, has got much more to do with cultural factors than physiological um, factors. That's the first point. Second point, very, very quickly, is of course his um, insight of that emotional, affective, cognitive um, um, uh, responses to pain have an impact on your feeling state. I mean, has been verified by a lot of different, uh, a lot of different um, medical scientific uh, research, which is why the International um, Society for the Study of Pain adopted their definition of pain, accepting this. And that definition has undergone changes since the 70s, but it's, you know, it still primarily um, operates. And very quickly, just the other thing is, of course, Beach's great work in inverted commas, is on surgical shock. And that's, that's I think, is interesting stuff in this period. And, yeah. Thank you. Um, Andrew Sadler. Um, my question is about um, surgery before anesthesia. Um, Sir, Sir Charles Bell um, wrote that he was able to carry out, carry out a normal conversation during his operation for um, a lithotomy. Yeah. Um, and how he could how he admired a child who would willingly submit to surgery in the knowledge it was good for them. 
Is he showing off his skill as a surgeon? Is he just telling us a lot of rubbish? Is he lying? Um, <laughs> you get a lot of accounts of this. Um, and I was speaking to someone um, earlier about um, you know, during the Napoleonic Wars, you get a lot of accounts of surgery um, and of surgeons actually saying, talking about the stoical um, response to pain. I think it makes a difference if you think there is relief available. I think uh, I go against some historians who want to downplay the importance of anesthetics um, in uh, responses to pain and in feeling states of pain. I actually think anesthetics are very important and very quickly um, important in, um, in a sense, delegitimating um, pain, surgical pain, I should say. I think when you're talking about chronic, there's a very, very different argument. But in terms of surgical pain, I think there is a real shift there. And, you know, you get, and it's not only a thing about mass, stoical masculinity. You get similar sort of um, um, stories, memoirs, letters in connection with women um, undergoing amputations. Amputations, uh, limb amputations, the one things I'm working on. Um, so I, I, I think that it is about comportment and it is about expectations of what ought to happen and what help you ought to be getting. Joanna, thank you for a spellbinding talk. It was superb. My question is very simple, really. How long did the need or lack of need for analgesia, as it were, go on? You're hit on the beach or wherever. How long would that period be? Beecher must have recorded such data. Yep, he does record it in the unpublished thing. He doesn't in the published version. In the unpublished thing, he he doesn't. Sorry, he doesn't record it. He speculates on it because, of course, uh, you know it is observation that we're talking about here. I mean, he he termed it um, experiments and and something more um, grand. But he speculated that it would that the pain only came back once they got to safety, that once they got to the hospital. Basically, these are men he's treating, seriously wounded men he's treating on the beachhead. They are being picked up by boats. He argued, or he speculated, um, that they began to feel serious pain once they were in safety. That was his point. Yes, please. Hello. D does prayer work? Um, so who, I can't see who's... Oh, there. Does prayer work? Yes, prayer does work <laughs> um, for, for a lot of people. Prayer works for believers. Um, it doesn't work for non-believers. Um, or it can work for believers, I should say. Um, and by the way, Peacher, Beecher um, was a um, passionate... Christian. I mean, he read the Bible every single day. He, he loved, I don't know if you realize, he loved reciting um, from the Bible. And he's written again a piece that I don't, th I haven't seen it published. It's in his papers, unpublished papers, where a very long piece of about 30 pages, where he's, he talks exactly about the need to have um, chaplains in the front lines because prayer works for him. And um, and it works for a similar reason that uh, you know, it provides comfort for these men. Um, and it's, an, it's a very, very interesting 30-page um, document on the need for Christ on the, beach, the beachhead. Yes, uh, I think we'll have to take one, one more, please. Uh, uh, Martin Brick and I am a serving um, army officer. Um, you, you've sort of provoked a question which I don't know the answer to, which I'm slightly embarrassed about. But I wonder when we first started issuing morphine to soldiers, 
and therefore when the institution realized that people got pain. And how that relates now, because we're going through a debate about the use of morphine interjets, autojets, and the, yeah. comparing that with the use of fentanyl lo lozenges. So as an, as an institution, we are yeah. still having difficulty understanding the yeah. concept of pain in the pre-hospital space and how to um, enable a, an individual to treat themselves. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm sure, actually, um, I think one of our speakers is going to be able to actually tell you exactly when it was introduced. I don't know the date. I'm sorry about that. Um, but what I do know, again, I've, um, I've done an analysis of just over 500 war memoirs uh, from the American Civil War to the present, or pretty much to the present. Um, and what is interesting there is there is a point, and it's definitely Vietnam War, but it may even be before, um, I, I don't know the date, but certainly Vietnam War memoirs, you get the first mention of um, using morphine syringes on yourself or on your comrades. And it is mentioned in two contexts. It's mentioned in the context of when you've run out, and it's secondly mentioned in the context of when it was never there in the first place. So in other words, uh, particularly POW camps. Um, and it is seen as the greatest affront to, um, you know, it, it is seen as not the front, the greatest sort of um, uh, being, being cast aside by your people. Um, and that's, that's how it's, it's phrased. That this is the, the real example, not being caught, made prisoner, but not actually being able to get any pain relief. That's, that's being uh, left behind. Well, I think we should uh, call it a, call a halt there. But can I once again thank Professor Burke for uh, an absolutely outstanding presentation and provoked a lot of thought and discussion. Thank you. Uh, it's now my uh, pleasure to introduce Professor Mark Harrison, who's the director of the Welcome Unit for the History of Medicine at the University of Oxford, who's going to uh, talk about the managing the wounded in World War II. Okay, um, I'm going to be talking today about the management of the wounded, not so much the, the experience of the wounded, which Joanna has very eloquently spoken about. Uh, I'm really going to try to examine the ways in which the British Army, and I'm concentrating here just on the British Army, attempted to deal with the extremely large numbers of wounded that were experienced during the war. And the ways in which they obviously were, were able to, to deal with both the, the challenges facing them in different theatres of the war with very different operational and environmental factors. And also, of course, the extent to which they're able to take advantage of some of the new developments taking place during the war, particularly uh, the advent of, of penicillin. And as well as trying to understand the, the extent to which the army was successful in doing that, one of the things I also want to, to try to probe is just how distinctive the British experience was. Now, of course, going into the Second World War, we have to take into account you know, the legacy of the First World War. And yesterday, we heard quite a, quite a lot about the First World War and just how 
uh, at least at the beginning of the war, just how hidebound some of the, the surgeons were uh, who were looking back to the experiences of the South African War, the experience of surgery on the dry felt, and only very gradually were weaned away from those kind of conservative techniques that were perfectly fine in South Africa, but were causing a great deal of wound infection and amputation in the manured fields of France and Flanders. Well, in the Second World War, of course, people also looked back to the previous conflicts. And they were able to see both negative and positive examples to follow from the First World War. We heard a lot yesterday about the, the positive examples. And I, won't, I, don't, I hope need to, to go all um, over those again today, except to say that particularly on the Western Front, there was really an uh, enormous amount of effort which put in to the evacuation and treatment of casualties. Tremendous organizational effort and tremendous cooperation too as we saw yesterday, between both the civilian medical profession who were in the army on temporary commissions, the regulars, and also with combatant officers. A very good relationship on the whole between medical officers and combatant officers, both at the battalion level, regimental level, and at the very highest levels of the service. Now, these were obviously things which people bore in mind going into the, the Second World War. But they also bore in mind the negative examples of the First World War, which um, very, very, very largely concentrated in places like Gallipoli, which was pretty much a disaster from a medical point of view, both in terms of preventive medicine, of course, high levels of disease, and also in terms of casualty evacuation. Um, obviously, it was a very complex operation because it was amphibious. Both, in, both landings were very, very difficult to manage from a medical point of view. But it was characterized also by a complete lack of cooperation between combatant officers and medical officers. Indeed, medical officers were deliberately excluded from meetings of the general staff prior to and during the campaign, something which was completely unheard of on the Western Front. The same thing happened in Mesopotamia with very similar results. It was a complete disaster. Again, the medical officers were kept out of the meetings of Sir John Nixon and the general staff. It wasn't really until the command was changed, until the, um, the uh, organization of the campaign moved from Delhi and the India office to London and the war office that things began to change. And they began to install generals then that had experience on the Western Front who were used to working with the medical officers and very gradually the situation changed. It wasn't really until the, until the beginning of October 1917 that you can see detailed medical plans for operations in Mesopotamia, whereas you could see them pretty much from the beginning, or at least from the very beginning of 1915 on the Western Front. So there was a lot to consider, and people considered both these negative and positive examples when thinking about how to plan military evacuation, a medical evacuation during the Second World War. And during the 1930s in particular, as war loomed with Germany, people also became very concerned about what kind of war would this be? How different would it be to the previous war? So they were beginning to think beyond the experiences of the last war to some extent. They knew that it would be a much more highly mechanized war. And people were thinking obviously about armored warfare more, much more generally at this time, with military thinkers like J.F.C. Fuller, for instance, becoming more and more influential. 
Now, obviously, the medical services would need to catch up with that. They'd need to be able to follow a rapidly moving armed force. And the mechanized, the, the, the military medical services began very slowly to mechanize, but the big problem was, of course, resources, which were very short in the 1930s, so short even that the, the Army Medical Corps could very rarely go on operations in peacetime to train alongside the Army. So there were real uh, resource constraints there too. But probably the most important thing which happened prior to the war, and I'll come back to this later, was the establishment of the blood transfusion service, which the idea emerged in 1938. It began to collect blood for storage to use in what seemed increasingly likely to be forthcoming conflict from summer of 1939. This, this commitment to blood transfusion, really at a national level, something which really had tremendous propaganda value for the British during the Second World War, it was crucially important in the treatment of casualties during the war. Now, I'm going to talk about two campaigns. It's impossible to talk about military medical evacuation in the army um, as a whole during the, during the Second World War. I'm going to concentrate on the campaign where I think um, the most, most interesting changes happen, which is the Western Desert to begin with. And then I'm going to jump to the Normandy landings and the period just after the Normandy landings. If I get time at the end, and certainly I'll be able to do this in questions, I'll, I will answer questions about the other theatres because they provide some really interesting contrasts as well as comparisons, particularly, for instance, Burma. So here's the, the first theatre I'm going to talk about, the Western Desert of, of Egypt and Libya. Um, now, the big problem here which was faced was distance. You can see it, this, this campaign is fought over a very long period, uh, a long period of time and over um, a very long distance. Here's the main base. British Army around Cairo in the Nile Delta. Big bases here, Cairo, Alexandria, and over in the canal zone here. Now, all the hospitals are in this area, apart from two. Throughout the whole of this period, there were only two hospitals outside of the, the Nile Delta. So this meant that as the fighting moved to and fro around here, that most of those casualties, if they were able to, if they needed to, to go into a um, hospital which had decent facilities, would have to travel a very long way. And this was difficult because the routes along here were very narrow. And obviously, there's going to be congestion. They're very vulnerable to air attack in particular and other kinds of attack. So it was a logistical nightmare, really, trying to um, deal with casualties in this kind of situation. And it's really compounded by the fact that you know, throughout this time, there's going to be um, uh, very little opportunity to put down any new hospitals because the warfare is mobile. Um, also, there's big problems with the water, shortages of water in the desert and obviously of electricity too. So basically, as a result of these fundamental problems, a new system of casualty evacuation disposal needs to be developed. And this is really um, an emphasis on forward surgery. This begins really with the British offensive, which uh, commences under Auchinleck. 
Um, this is the Crusader offensive. And um, this kind of, this phase of development that I'm talking about really ends with the Rommel's attack on Gazala. During this period, there are a really very large number of casualties the British have to deal with. And you can see here it's nearly 32,000 sick and wounded, which need to be taken along these long, these very extended lines of communication. Now, the evacuation um, of casualties, average evacuation time from one of the areas in which the fighting was taking place through to a, a large hospital was about six days by rail. Um, and it sometimes could be considerably longer because there was just one rail route. There's a lot of congestion on there. Over roads, um, obviously some of the, the evacuation was taking place over road before it was possible to get to a railhead and to a hospital train. Um, the, the ambulances faced multiple problems. The roads were extremely bumpy, of course. They were going off-road a lot of the time, and this was tremendously uncomfortable, obviously, for any wounded men. And then, of course, there's the problem of mines, as you've all seen if you've seen the film Ice Cold and Alex, where the, where the, where the ambulance is moving over the desert and encountering mines and so forth. This was, a, this was obviously a very real problem. Um, now, one of the reasons, one of the things that was kind of uh, used to deal with this situation was um, uh, innovation, which attempted to perfect the the Thomas splint that Peter Starling was talking to us about yesterday. Um, in order to immobilise the wound, um, and wounded limbs more effectively over rough ground they started to use a method which had been pioneered by the Spanish surgeon, Joseph Josep Truita, during the Spanish Civil War. In 1939, Truita came to, to Oxford, where he became professor. And he then began to, to publicize his method of immobilizing the wound, closing it in plaster. Up until this time, this is something that had not really been done in British military medical circles. A few younger surgeons became quite excited by it. During the war, the method was communicated, and in, particularly in the circumstances in which the army was fighting and having to evacuate casualties in the Western Desert, it really came into its own. So very rapidly, the, 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 this, this kind of uh, expedient for, for immobilizing limbs was circulated, and it became known as the Tobruk splint. Now, this is one of the... I just picked up this one example. There are many others of innovation. It's one, one of the interesting aspects of, of military surgery during the war, and also during the First World War, is that there was, as Joanna was saying, a great deal of adaptability, flexibility, experimentation, sometimes deliberate experimentation, sometimes just improvisation. But that's to be expected. But what's really interesting is the, the extent to which these things are actively communicated within the forces. A great deal of effort goes into this in both the First World War and the Second World War to share knowledge, to get a sense of what best practice is. And this is one of the areas in which some of the civilian consultants and medical advisors, some surgical advisors, really have a tremendous role because they're able, they're really, as experts in these areas, able to evaluate these kinds of innovations and then to re make recommendations that they become general practice. But it never completely ossifies, never becomes 
something which is a kind of absolutely binding order on everyone. So there's always scope for further innovation. And this kind of balance between organization and innovation is one of the kind of distinctive features, I think, of, of military surgery in this period. Now, the biggest innovation which takes place in the Western Desert, and which subsequently becomes really important for war surgery all right through the, the, um, the Second World War, is that obviously the army medical services need to become far more mobile. As I said earlier, there's some recognition of this uh, before the war, but nothing really could happen. What happens during the, during the Second World War is that it's found that the, the, the large military hospitals, the, the casualty clearing stations, as they were called during the First World War, which are really the kind of hubs of the medical machine in France and Flanders, those institutions, which were technically mobile, but really very large, um, large medical units, were totally unsuited to the kind of warfare that was occurring in the Western Desert, which was highly mobile. Um, it would sometimes take several days fully to pack up and move a casualty clearing station. So they began, some of the surgeons who were working in these clearing stations began to experiment and try to sometimes produce kind of mobile surgical units by adapting old trucks. The first ones were actually made from uh, Italian trucks, which are looted during some of the campaigns. They turned them into sort of miniature surgical units. And this practice began to, uh, say, be, to be circulated like a lot of the other innovations. People discussed it and they realized that it worked very well. And then it turns into a kind of matter of policy for the theater as a whole. Percy Tomlinson, who is the Sir Percy, later Sir Percy Tomlinson, who's the, the director of medical services, and that's the, he's the kind of chief medical officer for this theater, um, champions this idea. And then it begins to become much more systematic. The, the casualty clearing stations are broken up into different units. The lightest becomes what's known as a field surgical unit, an FSU. Field ambulances, too, are also broken up. Um, these are these are kind of one level down, if you like, from the casualty clearing station. But even those um, field ambulances are seen to be a little bit too cumbersome for desert warfare. So they're broken up into different sections. There's one relatively static section, the main dressing station, or MDS, which is capable usually of treating about 200 patients. And that remains relatively immobile, while the two mobile companies go out and treat casualties and also bring them back to the main dressing station for, for further treatment. Now, the field surgical unit, which is essentially, essentially a modified truck, could accompany any of these. Now, you can see here um, some vehicles which have been modified for this kind of warfare. And this would be the main dressing station here, where you've got a tented hospital in addition to these trucks. Now, this is the if you like, the divisional aspect, the divisional aspect of, of um, providing for medical care at the front. Then we're left with the regimental medical officers who were de dealing with the casualties as they occur in the field. And of course, it's okay having this kind of organization, but it doesn't work unless you've got people who can go around, pick up the casualties, following the armored fighting vehicles around in the desert. And it's recognized pretty early on that you know, this something needs to be done quite radically to, to try to um, alleviate this situation. So the, 
the army begins to, to provide armoured scout cars, which are these Daimler scout cars here, for the regimental medical officers so they can move around in the field with the tanks and the other fighting vehicles. And this works quite well, but to begin with, it's not terribly well coordinated. They really get that together over time. Um, what you can see here is another typical field unit. This would probably be a, a main dressing station. Now, the other thing which is beginning to change during the Second World War, which makes it, in a sense, a kind of transitionary conflict from uh, a casualty evacuation point of view, is the, you know, the increasing importance of air transportation. For the British, it wasn't very important in this phase of operations. They didn't really have the aircraft um, to be able to transport casualties. They began to use some transport aircraft to do that, but there were no specially adapted aircraft. Uh, but the Germans did have them right at the beginning. They, they provided special um, uh, sanitary flight sa sanitary sections which were made of these kind of Junker aircraft, which were specially adapted. They could carry about eight um, sitting casualties and four stretcher casualties. British had nothing like that to begin with. And this really was um, quite detrimental to morale. The British soldiers could see that the Germans had this. They didn't have it, and they wanted it. And there was a sense that you know, something had to change, and that's, this was tremendously important for the morale of troops. Later, after Al Alamein, they began to supply more medical, more aircraft for medical evacuation. But again, these were not terribly well adapted. It took some time, really, for that to get going. And as you'll see in the case of the Normandy landings, it really depended an awful lot on the Americans, just as casualty evacuation by air in Afghanistan has also depended on the Americans. The other key thing, though, probably made in many ways the most important thing, really, which enables forward surgery to take place is blood transfusion. Blood transfusion is the absolute key to the success of forward surgery in any theater um, during the Second World War. And here they're drawing to some extent on the lessons of the, the First World War, particularly the last year of war. I mean, as we were seeing yesterday, there's some interesting experimentations with blood transfusion, which were quite successful in the last part of the war. But in the desert, all the preparations which had taken place in Britain prior to the war uh, couldn't really uh, make a lot of difference because it was very difficult at first for blood to be taken out to, to the theater. Um, there was obviously a huge problem with being able to preserve blood for transfusions in the desert. It required a lot of refrigeration. It took some time for those facilities to become available. So really to to begin with, they had to do a lot of arm-to-arm -arm transfusion. This was problematic because it's quite possible that some of the troops who were uh, acting as donors had contracted an infection, like malaria. In some parts of this theater, malaria was a big problem. Um, and the kind of opportunities for screening just wouldn't, weren't there. But from the middle of 1941, um, the army begins to realize that the situation uh, has to change and really begins to deal with things really quite quickly. Mobile transfusion units are established in the desert. Uh, nearly all the people who provide blood are 
volunteers from within the theatre, but often back in the base, there is some opportunity to screen the blood before it's sent out to the, to the desert. People are encouraged to, to volunteer, as you can see here. This would be the, the sort of typical blood bank, but there would also be lots of other posters which was put up to try and induce the soldiers to, to come forward and donate. And, of course, most of them did because, you know, they, the chances were they may well require the blood themselves. There was really no problem. Um, a lot of effort was put into increasingly into storing the blood in the desert. Um, Colonel uh, Buttle, who was a uh, civilian physiologist, was really the person who was the kind of mastermind behind this, did most of the organization. What was known as Buttle's Bottled Blood became widely available in storage facilities in the theater. It's really not too difficult for a field transfusion unit to be able to, to move in, pick up this from the local base and take it through to the field transfusion centers. Um, blood typing, of course, people were aware of blood typing at this time. It was too complicated to do anything more, though, than just to make sure that all the blood was taken from type O donors, so it was compatible with everyone. Um, plasma was being used at this time, sometimes as a substitute for whole blood. On the whole, um, obviously, in some, some respects, plasma, which is capable of being dried, was something which is obviously quite suitable for warfare in the desert, but it had its limitations. Um, it was very useful in some of the less severe cases uh, where you all really you needed to do to be able to, to save the patient was to restore the blood volume. Um, it was better than ordinary saline solution. But in more severe cases, it wasn't really so good because it didn't, unlike whole blood, it's not really able to convey oxygen around the body. So there's always the danger in severe wounds of kind of acidosis, of oxygen hunger, as it was sometimes termed. So the British, on the whole, were, um, where possible, would use whole blood. And even compared with the Americans, and definitely more so than the Germans, they made a point of doing this. Um, the Germans did have some blood refrigeration facilities in the Western Desert, but they were relatively few. Overall, in Germany, much less effort is put into, much less thought is put into trying to store blood for, for the use of troops during the war. And this is also what facilities there were were sometimes, you know, uh, heavily bombed, damaged. A lot of them were concentrated around Berlin, for example. So they had, they had the Germans also had big logistical problems in this theatre. So all those things conspired to mean that the, the German troops here and also in some most other theatres had much less access to whole blood than the British did. The Americans were also um, got, uh, I suppose, came much later to the practice of using whole blood. Stand, as a standard, they tended to go initially for war for plasma. The other big thing which happens at this, in this theatre is surgical specialisation. Um, I don't have time to go into this too much, but there are a number of important innovations taking place here. There's the kind of development of some, of some maxillofacial surgery, some plastic surgery, particularly using vitamin C. Uh, injections of vitamin C to try and improve healing of wounds, which was much more difficult in, in this theater than some others. At this point in time, burns were a huge problem. Um, obviously, it's mechanized warfare. There's a lot of petrol on fire, and means that burns were a much bigger problem in the Second World War, particularly in an armored conflict like the one in the Western Desert, than they were in the First World War. 
And it wasn't just as a result of combat. There were actually a lot of injuries, a lot of burns injuries taking place with men basically brewing up tea, using petrol as a fuel. This was, was re remarkably common, despite being told clearly not to do this. Um, neurosurgery was also... Um, there were also some neuro neuro neurosurgical facilities in the theatre, although they were concentrated really in the... Um, to begin with, in the larger um, hospital areas like Cairo. Later on, they developed mobile neurosurgical neuro units, but that really wasn't until the, you know, the fighting. Um, uh, okay, I'm into Normandy now. Um, it was, won't take too long to, to go through this. Um, really, this, uh, the Normandy campaign is obviously incredibly important because it's one of the largest military operations ever maybe even the largest, I'm not quite sure about that, or how you go about measuring it. But it's an enormously large and complex operation. So doing casualty evacuation in that context of amphibious warfare, also airborne landings, obviously these things are incredibly difficult to get right. But drawing on the experiences of the Western Desert and also of some other campaigns, which I really didn't have the, the time to, to go into, um, the medical aspects of this campaign are incredibly um, well organized and things really pan out pretty much as expected during the campaign with the exception of psychiatric casualties which are underestimated and that's something unfortunately I really don't have time to, to go into. Um, by the time the Normandy campaign happens, um, also there are some other um, things which have become available. And the most obvious of these is penicillin, which is helping to transform uh, treatment of wound infections, but also burns, whereas previously people have been treating burns with, say, a sulfonamide gauze. Now it can be a penicillin gauze, which is more effective. So um, a lot happens. In the first four months, in the four months running up to the D-Day campaign, a great deal of effort is put into planning the medical aspects of it. And it really includes all kinds of things, surgical teams and other um, parts of the medical corps are really training on some of the equipment that they're going to be using. The, the ducts, which you could see in the previous slide, um, also the, the landing ship tanks, which um, see the landing craft, which are ferrying over most of the men to the Normandy beaches and taking back a lot of the, the casualties. Um, the casualties are, the casualty estimates for the campaign are very realistic ones. Unlike, for instance, the Gallipoli landings where they were totally unrealistic and far lower than the actual number of casualties. As far as the, the British and, the, say, the Canadians are concerned, anyway, during the D-Day landings, the casualties were actually slightly overestimated, slightly underestimated in the case of the Americans. Obviously, that's a function of the, you know, the nature of fighting on the different beaches. Um, the provisions for the beaches are actually pretty standard for the British contingent. To begin with, there's two field dressing stations, one of the field surgical units um, and also field transfusion units. Blood transfusion is given a lot of priority from the very beginning. And many thousands of um, crates of blood are sent over, even during the first two days of the D-Day landings, to, to be able to, to enable forward surgery to take place. After one day, um, a casualty clearing station is also landed once the beachheads have been cleared. That's really quite an impressive um, uh, feat of organization. See, on the, the, uh, 
on the beaches themselves, there's tremendously heavy casualties, um, even though it's within the expectation that dealing with these in situations where medical staff are often under fire, where the beaches are completely chaotic, people moving um, even after the beachheads have been secured, people are moving around, trucks are moving. Um, it's an incredibly difficult situation to, in which to be able to perform surgery or dress wounds. But nevertheless, you know, people are able to deal with very large numbers of casualties. The biggest problem was actually tiredness. People were sometimes working for you know, a couple of days without a break. Um, on the whole, the wounded were dealt with and evacuated very quickly, between about 26 and 36 hours from time of wounding um, to being back in one of the hospitals on the other side of the, the English Channel. Um, a number of uh, temporary hospitals were established on the Channel, which act as triage centers. 80% um, of the, the Allied casualties who were treated in June of 1944 survive. As the campaign in Normandy continues, that increases to, um, to about 95%. And strangely, this also includes 68% of abdominal wounds, obviously very difficult wounds to treat, but, using, you know, uh, but even with the facilities that were available in the first phase of this campaign, it was possible to, to deal fairly well with abdominal cases. The airborne assault obviously was an incredibly um, difficult challenge from the point of view of dealing with casualties because for a long time these units were going to be, the, the, the airborne medical units were going to be isolated. Really a lot depended on how quickly they could link up with the ground forces. Prior to this there were a couple of airborne assaults that the army were able to learn a great deal from. One was the landing in North Africa which didn't go terribly well from a medical point of view. Um, it was found that you know, a lot of the equipment just wasn't really suitable for airborne landings. There was a real problem with the lack of um, medical transport. So in subsequent drops that began to be perfected like in Sicily, by the time of the D-Day landings, they'd planned to bring in jeeps for casualty evacuation using gliders um, and medical supplies, some of which are special ones I'll show you in a moment. The biggest problem, though, was, was blood, of course. I mean, they, they didn't really have the refrigeration facilities to be able to store blood. Blood could only keep without refrigeration for about a day. So most of the um, blood was just taken locally from, from the medical staff or from, or from serving troops. The prisoners of war that were captured by the, some of the, the, the para, parachute troops on the ground were sometimes put to work in the dressing stations. And this, on the whole, seems to have been quite a good arrangement on both sides. People worked together really in quite, you know, relatively friendly circumstances, it seemed, and it was quite an effective use of these troops. Um, the medical units were fortunate, or at least some of them were fortunate, and they, they, were, they were able to link up with ground troops by 9 p.m. on the first day of the landing. So that really enabled the large numbers of cases that they were dealing with to be evacuated to more suitable places. I should say something about the, the medics with the special air service. I mean, there were actually some special air service units working in the area. They were much deeper behind enemy lines, a bit further to the south of the main airborne landing. And they were there sometimes working on their own for several weeks 
dealing with casualties among themselves and also among the French resistance fighters. Here's some airborne medical equipment which is specially devised for, for the landings in Normandy. And here you can see an airborne, airborne medic. All this equipment was designed obviously to be light and not to, to shatter on landing. After D-Day itself, really from the second day after the Normandy landings, um, things begin to improve quite markedly. Um, one of the biggest advantages that the, as the army goes in and is able to establish a, a breachhead um, that, they, that they, they have at this time is air evacuation, which becomes more and more important as the campaign progresses. Uh, by the end of July, about 8,000 wounded men have been evacuated back to Britain within you know, a relatively short time of being wounded. Um, again, depending very much on American aircraft, the, by the time the campaign is, is over in Normandy, about 100,000 troops have been evacuated by air. Now, obviously, there's some difficulties too. One of the difficulties is, is that during, it was very difficult to dislodge the Germans from Normandy. Fighting the Bocage was tremendously difficult. It was difficult for armored um, fighting vehicles to move and therefore also sometimes difficult to evacuate troops. And there were a lot of burns injuries as before. Some of the, the, the tanks which were used by the British and also by the Americans, the Sherman tanks, the Cromwell tanks, well, I had a Cromwell tank, but I don't. Um, they, they were very, very susceptible to, to mines, to German um, Panzerfausts, the, the kind of the anti, like, sort of essentially rocket-propelled grenades, but of course also to, to German tanks and, art, and artillery. Um, and there was a very large number of casualties in tanks, and they began to supply more and more in the way of first aid for people in the tanks themselves so the tank crews could deal with um, immediate injuries. One of the big problems was, particularly with the Cromwell tanks, was being able to get out of the tank because the, 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 um, the entrance and exit at the top was actually relatively small. As the campaign progressed, the mobile evacuation system, which had been used in the Western Desert, really came into its own. And these small units would essentially leapfrog along, moving up one in front of the other as the, as the, the army moved forward. And that worked pretty well on the whole, except when there was very congested lines or very narrow lines of evacuation, as there was around fighting around Khan. Um, and here you can actually see uh, a jeep which is typical of the, the kind of evacuation which is taking place around Khan, where, where there were very few roads <coughs> which were accessible. Now, by the end of Normandy operations, the vast majority of wounded men had received wound closure in between three to five days, and this was um, an improvement by comparison with some campaigns earlier in the war. About 93% of cases survived. This is 93% of cases who come into the, the field surgical units. Um, and this is a pretty good rate of survival, although perhaps not quite as good as, as it was in, the, as in Italy at the same time. Um, and 
not quite as good, strangely, as in the later stages of the Burma campaign, where there's about 95% survival rate. But that's in the later stages of the campaign. And one of the reasons for that is that in southern Burma, by the time the British army had got down to there, they'd established a very large medical base in a place called Shweba. And they were flying in casualties from the fight areas in which the fighting was taking place using small airplanes. And were then, they would then be taken sometimes from the base at Shwebo to Calcutta, to some of the large hospitals. So they were receiving really quite detailed, quite, in, you know, quite specialized treatment sometimes within about a day of being taken off the battlefield. This was really moving towards a different kind of casualty evacuation system, very different from the emphasis on forward treatment, which you could see earlier in the Second World War, and of course, on, in, during the, the First World War, this is kind of moving towards the situation we have in Korea and also today. So it's a very much a kind of transitional conflict in that sense. Um, overall, and I think one can argue that despite the tremendous, very varied kind of challenges that the army faced during the Second World War, the casualty evacuation was dealt with pretty well, and it was dealt with pretty well by comparison also with the other armies. I think it was obviously in many respects we were a little bit ahead of the Americans coming, were using whole blood, but very much dependent on them for air evacuation. The Germans suffered from real kind of lack of preparation when it came to organizing things like blood transfusion. Obviously from the lack of penicillin too, a lot of wound infections among British, among German soldiers captured towards the end of the war, and a lot of anemia too. Um, but obviously the Germans, too, were suffering from, by the end of the war, very unfavorable operational situations. So it's very hard to do a kind of exact comparison between these, these different armed forces. But on the whole, I think um, this is, for me anyway, one of the, the kind of the most um, striking achievements, really, of the army during the war, the way in which it's able to, to cope with the large numbers of wounded. And this is obviously very important to the army for operational reasons in terms of manpower economy, but it's also tremendously important in terms of public morale. Really, from the time of the First World War, possibly from the later stages of the Boer War, it's very clear that the public will not countenance armed operations on this scale unless they think that soldiers are getting the best possible medical care that they can in the situations in which the army finds itself. And that also goes for providing for the health of the force in terms of preventive medicine. So most commanders by this point, most politicians are very well aware of this. And this is one of the reasons why through the First World War, at least on the Western Front, and through nearly all, in nearly all the theaters of the Second World War, the medical officers and the combatant officers work really well together. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I think we'll, we'll move straight on uh, to uh, discussion. Um, so, anyone got questions, please? Thank you very much for your presentation. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, I was wondering, can you, um, can you tell us a little bit more about how the casualty estimate was actually conducted? Mm. And um, in particular, um, was there any formal recognition guiding the availability of medical capability by times in terms of clinical planning timelines? 
Sorry, can you say the last part again? W was there any guidance in terms of the availability of medical capability um, by time um, in the forms of you know, clinical planning timelines so a particular type of capability should be available in a certain time? Um, well, it's sometimes very hard to get uh, this kind of very precise detail. Um, in terms of casualty estimates, I haven't actually come across the kind of details about how they work these things out. You could just, what I've found is just the, the estimates themselves and people are, you know, but the, the whole process by which they actually achieve these um, figures is, is sometimes a bit unclear to me. So I'm afraid I can't really help with that. Um, in terms of planning, when, for instance, I think if, you, if I understand you correctly, when, when a particular medical unit will be exactly available in time to be able to do something, yes, that does exist. Um, that, in fact, existed really from the First World War on the Western Front. Um, they had, by the, particularly by about 1916, they, um, had a, they had estimates about, for instance, for instance say, for during the, the Somme campaign or later on during the, um, the, the, during the Passchendaele offensive, they worked out which medical units would sort of come online first. And they, they had a system whereby one would come online, it would, it, would, it would be full, and then another one would come into operation. The casualties would be evacuated from one, another one then would become full, and they'd do the same to that, and then move the casualties to the, the one which had, which had been originally used. This was sort of going on along the front. And so they had, obviously, that was dependent to some extent on the military situation, but they did have kind of estimates about kind of roughly when that would be. Um, and they had worked, even within medical units, they'd worked out really down to the last minute how long it took, for instance, for somebody to do an operation of a particular kind. And they had people come in to do time and motion studies in some, even in the casualty clearing stations, you know, the relatively forward medical units so that they could maximize the throughput. So the kind of, the, 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 the timing of you know, both in terms of how long it took to do certain things and also about when a, when a particular medical unit would be ready was worked out in a, rel in a relatively uh, great amount of detail, even in the Western Front in the First World War. Any other, any other questions? The young surgeons who worked around this time were still clinically active in the 60s and 70s when I was training, and uh, Bernie's sitting on my right, and I spent many hours in operating theatres listening to wartime experiences. And I can say, as a whole, uh, everyone I worked for, their morale, they said, was very high because mm. the organisation was so good, and yeah. they felt they were working in a really well-organized environment, and they pointed out that the soldiers knew, and the f soldiers' families knew, that they were getting the best available yeah. at the time. And it's interesting that after the war, when the hospitals were nationalized, the only major institution that supported the NHS was the Royal College of Surgeons, and these were these people mm. who knew mm. what a properly organized health service could do. Yes, yeah. I mean, that, that confirms exactly what 
I found I'm really very um, heartened to hear that your kind of your personal experience really kind of gels with what I've read. Um, it's very it's very clear that people settled in. You know, some of these young surgeons settled into the new role really quite easily. I mean, sometimes within a day, there would be you know, new surgeons. That some of the surgeons who came out, for instance, in Normandy, um, it was often said by some of the more experienced men who were there that usually within about 24 hours, they were like seasoned veterans. And this was largely because of the kind of support that they had and the kind of the quality of organization. They felt confident in, in that kind of situation. And they felt confident. The many, I suppose, most of the the soldiers who were being treated by them as a result of that could see the team spirit. They themselves felt confident. And this then, you know, that sort of, that kind of confidence was pretty much shared by the nation as a whole. And I think you're probably right also to say that um, you know, the, the experience of working in this kind of well-organized environment and seeing it work very effectively, it was probably a very important sort of formative experience in terms of the way in which people, um, accepted the idea of the National Health Service after the war. And one brief anecdote, one guy I worked for, he said with disbelief they watched the Americans disembarking dental chairs on D-Day plus one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite right. <laughs> um, I'm just going to take one, one, one I'm sorry, we're, we're, we've got to <coughs> just trim things a little bit. Can I take one, one more slide? Go there, please. Sorry, I'm I think we need to move on after this, unfortunately. Thank you. Uh, what was the seniority of the uh, doctors or surgeons doing the triage, presumably either at the casualty clearing stations or the forward surgical units? The seniority? Uh, well, I think it... It's not always easy to tell, to be honest, who, who exactly is doing the triage. Um, except... It's easy. I mean, you can tell it's being done, but it's not always easy to say by whom. Um, I think, you know, I suppose as a general rule, then it, it tends to be the the kind of less senior people who are doing that, as far as I, as far as it's possible to tell on the whole. And I, I, I suspect that's um, I suspect that's true. No? Well, no. well, I don't know. Well, I mean, I... The most senior. The most senior. Hmm. Well, on that well, note... I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I'm afraid we, we need to, 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 to move on, but can I thank you very much for showing us okay. just how so clearly how medical services had to adapt, not only to the new type of warfare, but individual campaigns linked with the technical advances uh, within uh, the, the care of, of, of the wounded. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Now we move on to uh, our third speaker, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce Professor Edgar Jones, um, who is Professor of History of Medicine and Psychiatry at the Institute of Psychiatry and King Center for Military Health Research. And um, Professor Jones can talk about shell shock and its relevance in Afghanistan. Thank you very much indeed. 
these are the iconic cultural images of shell shock. And if you watch any documentary this year or next year, no doubt these figures will appear. But, and they come from a film made by Arthur Hearst called War Neuroses. And they establish a sort of classic way of looking at treatment. So you have the patient beforehand with contractures unable to walk, being examined by Dr. Hurst in a wheelchair at Netley. And after treatment with occupational therapy, demonstrating to other patients that he's fully recovered as a, a basket maker. So good example of how well he's been treated. Hurst himself was an ambitious doctor. He was still relatively young. He was in his late 30s in the First World War but he had an entrepreneurial zeal, and he had an, a, a keen eye for opportunities. He was said to be the first consultant to arrive at Guy's in a Rolls-Royce. <laughs> and he makes the film in two locations. Initially in 1917, he's funded by the Medical Research Council, and he, he films at uh, Netley, where he's in charge of the functional nervous cases. Um, but he's quite keen to establish much more control over patients, and he then persuades the War Office to take over a recently constructed agricultural college near Newton Abbott in Seal Hain, where he has complete control and advances his occupational therapy with farming, pottery, and uh, other forms of activity. And just the final part of this film, to demonstrate how successful he's been in treating his patients, they reenact the Battle of the Somme, but they call it the Battle of Seal Hain, and it shows that shell-shocked soldiers can be returned to fully fighting men. So really good quality evidence of his treatments. We rely on these images and his outcome studies to this day, but how representative are these cases and how successful was he really in curing pa uh, patients? Well, these are the intertitles of Sergeant Bissett, and apparently this is August uh, 1917 at the top, then November and then December. But if you, and you can see he goes from being bent double to walking quite normally. But if you look at the background, you'll see it's identical in all three pictures. This is a recreated, reenacted bit of fakery by Hearst. Uh, but he, he makes no mention of this. He doesn't say, oh, this is a, a reconstruction for your benefit. And this is a film not made for the general public, but made for doctors as part of their training. And Hearst is a bit worse than that. Not only does he make the film, he also publishes in the Lancet how successful he's been. And he goes on a lecture tour of the United States immediately after the war. And he'll say here, 96 of 100 consecutive patients were cured within an hour. And those that were left were better within a few weeks. And these are chronic cases. These are cases that have been in hospitals for years before he, they come to Seal Hain. You may say, well, why does this really matter? But it's got picked up in the literature. And so... The BBC in 2002 was saying Hearst was potentially saving the lives of nerve-shattered men. I gave a talk to the British Psychological Society a few weeks ago, and a psychologist stood up and said, surely we should be doing all this. If Hearst had all the answers, why aren't we doing it today with PTSD in Afghanistan? So he's got embedded into the literature. And we wanted to test this, so we did a hunt for some of his patients. We went through our database, and we did find one patient who'd been treated by him at Seal Hain, and he's even signed the notes at the bottom to say that Saffa Chamberlain is now very much better, his symptoms have gone, and we can discharge him from to civil employment. And we followed him up, and we found, sure enough, a few, a few years later, his symptoms have come back, and he's stabilised in 1922 with a war pension and chronic invalidity. But it's not just us. People at the time, other shell-shock doctors, were suspicious of Hearst's claim. Dr Thomas Lumsden writes to The Lancet, 
1917 to say we need proper follow-up studies at six and 12 months. Is Hearst really getting people better or are they just saying they're better? Sir Henry Davy, who's working down in Devon, who's conducted a tour of inspection of Seal Hane, says, I'm not impressed by these lightning tours. Do they really work? I've been to other hospitals where people work more slowly, more carefully, and I think they're more likely to have a more stable mental state. The beginning of the Second World War, again, people, doctors are sort of casting around for treatment protocols for the expected psychological casualties. And a lot of people say, well, Arthur Hearst has got all the answers. Let's just borrow his film. We just have to copy what he did. And that inspires uh, um, uh, letters to the Lancet and the BMJ of doctors saying, actually, we've seen a lot of his patients and they didn't get better. And uh, we're in a lot of risk if we go down the route that he suggested. So we come back to him a bit later on. The First World War is 5.7 million men, a vast citizen army. So it's a cross-section through the male population subjected to stress and you know, the possibility of being killed or wounded. And we can see, comparing with Afghanistan, your chance of being killed and wounded is significantly greater in the First World War than mercifully it is today in Afghanistan. And I think there's an estimate that suggests that a third of French infantry officers were probably killed uh, in the First World War. So 17% of troops in frontline combat units are likely to be killed. They didn't know it at the time, and it, this was discovered in the Second World War, that the psychiatric breakdown rate is crucially determined by the killed and wounded rate. So these are internal reports of Canadian troops in Italy in 1949. The top line is killed and wounded, the bottom line is psychiatric casualties. And so you can push the relationship is always the same, but you can move the distance between the two by morale, uh, whether you're winning or losing, confidence in leaders, whether you're getting regular sleep or food. And just to demonstrate that it endures across nations and wars, this is Yom Kippur 1973, where the Israelis are initially taken by surprise, and their psychiatric casualty rates are almost as high as the killed and wounded rates. So with this bit of knowledge, we, we can predict with the huge levels of, of killed and wounded in the First World War that there will be thousands of cases of shell shock because the relationship is an established one. And it's not just a, a, a medical priority, it's also a military crisis as well. Shell shock emerges in the winter of 1914, and today we would say it's medically unexplained symptoms. It's a whole range of psychosomatic presentations of chest pain, palpitations, memory problems. So it's th there's a bit of an overlap with PTSD, but it's not the same disorder under a different name. There may be some cases within the huge number of shell shock cases that you could say meet the criteria today of PTSD, but the vast majority are common medically unexplained symptoms which prevent the soldier from doing his work. So here's an example I took from the Maudsley, treated at 4th uh, London General Hospital at King's over the road, and you can see he's got a, a broad range from poor concentration, headache, tremor, loss of voice, anxiety, low mood, fear of traffic, jumpiness. So it's very difficult to categorize him using today's uh, medical terminology. It's, it's a catch-all term which springs up and is, 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 taught, is how soldiers describe how they're feeling. By 1917, it is a, a significant crisis because so many soldiers are breaking down and when you've got a war of attrition and you need as many people in the front line as possible, shell shock has the capacity to undermine the fighting strength of the British Army. So if we have 1.2 million wounded and sick, a conservative estimate of shell shock would be close to a quarter of a million servicemen. We know some campaigns 
psychiatric casualties can rise to 30 or 40% of total. So what happened? These are the dramatis personae, the, the guys who decide and implement the policy. Arthur Sloggett, Director General Army Medical Services in the middle. On, the, on your left-hand side is Gordon Holmes, consultant urologist, and Charles Myers, consultant psychologist, both attached to the British Expeditionary Force. And they both have very different ways of uh, conceptualizing shell shock. So Holmes, as a neurologist, says that unless you've got objective signs and symptoms, essentially shell shock is malingering. It's a person who's using symptoms as a way of avoiding uh, frontline service, and they should be treated appropriately, in his view, with military discipline, because otherwise you simply encourage invalidity and the Soldiers who are managing to stay in the front line are being given a heavier load because others are able to uh, withdraw to a position of safety. And he maintains that position throughout the war. Myers adopts a slightly more nuanced uh, view because he's done in-depth analysis of shell shock cases. He treats them. And he says it's much more complicated than that. You get soldiers who are worn out by service and they then start to not only be physically exhausted, but mentally exhausted, and they create unconsciously symptoms. And these symptoms um, are, are there as a consequence of the internal psychological um, uh, trauma that they're experiencing, but they can be treated. And he manages to persuade the military in December 1916 that if we have specialist treatment units, you can treat shell shock and return soldiers to active duty. And he borrows the model from the French. The French introduced this idea in the summer of 1915, and they set up four specialist forward psychiatric units for the five armies in France. So they're, nowadays we call them PI, proximity, immediacy of treatment, and expectation of recovery. PI is not a term they use at the time, although they describe uh, the mechanism. And the thing about forward psychiatry, it's sort of counterintuitive in a way because you go to the front line, you have a horrific experience, you're then taken to a place of safety, you're given some treatment. When you're better, you're sent back to the place which made you feel ill in the first place. So if I work in a chemical factory and I get toxic exposure, go to hospital, get cleaned up, you wouldn't send me back to the chemical factory knowing that health and safety hadn't made a visit. So why did they think it would work? And this really uh, is to do with the way they conceive of shell shock. Initially, they think, oh, yes, it's a physical wound. So this is Frederick Morton, his laboratory at the Maudsley, neuropathologist, leading expert on shell shock. At first, he thinks, yeah, it's, we've seen this before. It's either concussion or it's a toxic exposure. It doesn't take him very long to work out that most patients in seeing haven't, haven't, their, their symptoms have not arisen in that circumstance. Most, he thinks, most servicemen who break down, having studied their symptoms, their pre-war history, their military record, he believes have an uh, either an inborn genetic psychological vulnerability or an acquired vulnerability. And they do a controlled study with wounded uh, to look at the families of people who break down with shell shock. And they think they pick up a higher incidence of mental illness in those who have shell shock and those who don't. But he also says, and this gets forgotten, there's another group of soldiers who don't have any family history of mental illness. They're perfectly healthy before they join the army and they've just been through a horrific experience, and it would break the will of anyone. So his position at the end of, the, by 1916, is there are three types of which the most people who break down are probably a bit vulnerable, but there are another group who have just been through a horrific experience. 
So forward psychiatry is considered appropriate because it gives people a breather, because they don't see war as primary, they see war as secondary. It's to do with your personality, because most people don't get shell-shocked, probably 20% maybe. So to explain why only a minority, they say that war is a trigger rather than the fundamental cause, except in this subgroup, which they've identified as being relatively small. So we thought we'd try to analyse this one shell-shock centre that uh, uh, the records have survived, the Public Record Office and National Archives, and we thought we'd analyse who went there, what happened to them, um, and what, what uh, units they served in. And it operates for about 11 months in near St. Homer, which is the medical uh, centre. So you can see mo most people, uh, around about 26, we went through all 3,500, most people are there for about 25 days, not too long. So it is brief-focused uh, therapy. Uh, the privates are underrepresented. There are more corporals and sergeants and warrant officers than you expect to find uh, if you look at the distribution on the ground. And we think that's because they're just war-weary. You know, to get promoted, they've been there a long time, and they're just fed up with this constant grind of trench warfare. This was the thing that really surprised us. We knew how long, from each record, we knew how long the man had been in France before he was admitted. And we expected there to be just a sort of gradual tail off. But what we discovered, which was surprising, is these peaks. There's a peak at 12 months, another one at 24 months, the one at 18 months, and uh, at 30 months as well. So it looks as though a soldier is saying, after a year in the front line, I've had enough, I've been here, uh, you know, I can't see a way forward. I'm at the end of my tether, and I'm going to negotiate a period of rest. And the fact that they get admitted to the shell shock unit and then somewhere else shows that the medical officer is agreeing with them, that the shell shock is being used as a form of negotiation to give people a breather. If you turn up on day one in the trench and say, I've got shell shock, you won't get very good reception. The medical officer will tell you, you know, get on with it and don't bother me. But what this is suggesting is that if you turn up after two years and say, I've got shell shock, you're much more likely to be admitted because medical officers have begun to learn about the nature of warfare and to accept that soldiers can't go on forever. So there's a sense in which the British Army, by 1917, is saying you can earn a breakdown. If you've done reasonable service, you can be treated. And we wanted to compare two phases of warfare, so live and let live, uh, a sort of period when people are generally keeping their head down trying to survive, and then also a period of a battle, the assault on Messines Ridge. And you can see uh, this is a period relatively quiet. They've got about 100, just over 100 missions uh, every month, and the vast majority of people are the frontline troops uh, who are being treated. We then, we're fortunate that uh, the Battle of Messines Ridge, uh, uh, told by military historians, it was a, a military success, but certainly with a significant number of casualties uh, attacking German positions up a slight hill. And in the vanguard of this attack were various battalions of the London Regiment, uh, and we had, we, we've looked for these in, in the records. So some of the attacking troops are territorials from uh, South London, and we found these particularly represented. Uh, so uh, the 23rd London Battalion has 36 cases, so you can see that those troops who were very much in the front line, subjected to danger, these are the ones who seem to be being picked up and sent to our shell shock unit. So first of all, there's a huge increase. Once you have a battle, the numbers go through the roof, and that's not the total because this shell shock unit isn't big enough to take all the cases that are going through. Others are going to general hospitals, and 
to some extent, you're lucky if you go to a specialist unit or not. And you can see, again, the proportion of combat support and medics has gone up slightly, but the majority are frontline troops. So here we are. Uh, in the period of calm, it's 98% frontline. In the period of the battle, it's down to about 91%. So we also want to know what happened to them. The vast, major the vast majority go to other hospitals, convalescent depots to base. Very few go straight back to battle. You know, round, only 17% go straight back to duty. So as an effective military intervention, it's not as good as everyone's suggesting because the idea is that it should return everyone to duty as quickly as possible. The army are not quite sure. There, there's some evaluation that goes on. Gordon Holmes, who's the, you know, the tough guy, says he, he's uh, told by Sloggett to go and evaluate the effectiveness of these units. He says, actually, they work quite well because we've only found that 10% are readmitted, so it seems like most people are going back to duty, but he actually closes the unit. So although he says it works well, he closes it, and it becomes a center for venereal disease, which, of course, is a punishment center. Why did he close it? Well, we think Sloggett closed it, and they think that the, the effort towards shell shock is disproportionate. They say men should just recover as long as they're in a place of safety with a bit of rest and reassurance, and we don't need these specialist units. So we can almost do without them and just treat uh, shell shock soldiers uh, in general medical hospitals. Dudley Jones, the guy who runs it, uh, actually has the lowest return to duty rates. Uh, he published these after the war. He, he's saying he manages to get about 40% back to duty, whereas others are claiming much higher rates. So we think he's targeted because he's probably the most honest of the shell shock doctors. And he talks about this vicious competition. The three remaining centers continue to operate to the end of the war, and they publish the most grandiose statistics in medical journals. So William Brown here says 70% straight back to duty within you know, two weeks, no problems at all. William Johnson, who commands another one, says at least 55% return to duty. So I think it's partly because they're afraid of being um, uh, found, uh, of being criticized and moved to other jobs, that they tend to exaggerate their return to duty rates. But the problem with this is that when Southborough does his post-war report, the army you know, employs Southborough, gets a committee of experts in 1920-22 to try and get a, a proper policy position on how we handle psychiatric casualties in the next war, they think, ah, shell shock is preventable, it's easily to treat, and in fact, we don't really have to worry about it too much because it's exactly the same as what every GP is seeing on a daily basis. And they sort of put it to bed thinking, we've dealt with shell shock because they've got the evidence of the film and they've got the evidence in The Lancet and the BMJ. So how does this compare with uh, Afghanistan today? Both conflicts are dominated by exploding ordnance. 60% of deaths in the First World War are from shrapnel, and today, of course, casualties are caused by IEDs, rockets, and mortars, both hard campaigning. There is a difference in the level of killed and wounded, but you can see at the bottom there are some units who have particularly hard tours of duty, like the Anglin Regiment or the Third Rifles Battle Group, where they have casualty rates of around 9 to 10%. So they're getting close to the First, war, first, first World War uh, casualties in, in particular battles at particular times. The good news at the moment is that PTSD uh, for UK armed forces is 4% as a total, but 7% for frontline. And the background PTSD rate for the UK population is 3%. So the, the British Army is only 1% higher than 
me and the rest of the civilian population. So at the moment, PTSD is in, within manageable limits. But what has emerged, and it's, it's caused particular problems to American armed forces, is this, this new idea of mild traumatic brain injury. It's a bit like um, shell shock. There's almost an oxymoron in the title. If it's mild, can it be traumatic? If it's uh, shocking, can it know that a shell protects you? And they're, they're interesting names that, that have caught on in both wars. And you can see the symptoms of MTBI overlap with the symptoms uh, that we saw in some of the shell shock cases. The term doesn't originate in Afghanistan or Iraq. It was first used in 1992 in America for head injury following road traffic accident, but it doesn't really catch on. And it only becomes a high-level, pro high-profile uh, disorder in 2009 when it's applied to servicemen, U.S. servicemen coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And you can see it presents, immediately it presents the Americans with a significant medical crisis. 15% of U.S. infantry soldiers deployed to Iraq in 2008 meet the criteria for MTBI three months after their return. 40% have been exposed to a blast which would again, meet the criteria. So in America, it's considered very important and taken very seriously by the United, Arm, United States Army Medical Corps. We've done studies in the UK. It's not as significant here. As you can see, uh, a random sample done by uh, King Center for Military Health Research showed that an overall pre prevalence of about 4%. So it's similar to PTSD, but 9.5% 9, 9 in front line. So... PTSD, MTBI, very, very similar rates at the moment uh, for UK armed forces. So my conclusion, really, um, is that the First World War, Hearst, his film, the outcome claims, um, suggested that war syndromes characterized by medically unexplained symptoms are relatively easy to deal with. They were preventable. And the War Office puts that into policy. But what we've actually seen from the First World, by, by our own retrospective studies of the shell shock unit, is that a lot of these cases didn't get better, and they had chronic invalidity. And the Ministry of Pensions in the 1920s and 30s sets up specialist treatment units for shell shock pensioners, and very few people actually get better. And by the mid-1930s, they're almost saying, we've tried, we've had our outpatient clinics, we've had our inpatient therapy units... And we've just got to accept that these are chronic disorders that are difficult to treat and that we have got a pension bill that's going to run on and run on. And I think one of the problems with shell shock and MTBI is that it's very difficult to establish a common narrative, that the serviceman comes along with a view of what's wrong with him, and when you're dealing with medically unexplained symptoms, the doctor's not necessarily is going through a series of lots of investigations which aren't fitting with the, the symptoms. And so in a sense, I think what we're seeing emerging again with MTBI is something similar to the debate that we saw about shell shock. There's almost a battle between the neurologist saying this is a, uh, an organic brain injury and the psychiatrist saying, no, no, these are functional symptoms which we need to interpret in a different way. And the problem is the patient is somewhere in the middle and we're still struggling, you know, 100 years on from the First World War to find a way of addressing and dealing with chronic, long-term, severe psychosomatic disorders arising in the context of war.
thank you very much for covering what I think to many of us is a very difficult area to, to uh, understand and to get our head around. Any, any questions, please? Let's start over there and then to there. Um, you mentioned, sorry. Yep, that's fine. Me? Yeah, yes, please, okay. sorry. Um, I'm very interested in this because it actually um, addresses a, an issue which I think should become important, which is, is there a difference between neurology and psychiatry? Is, in fact, all psychiatric illness some neurochemical disorder? And the reason that there is still a separation between the two is that we simply haven't discovered what the neurochemical disorder is. Just because we haven't discovered it doesn't mean it isn't there. Mm -hmm. And the question, therefore, is if you're looking at patients with mild TBI, um, is there any way of actually investigating them in a physical way, such as, for instance, by PET scanning, to see whether there is some disorder in some relevant part of the brain that will then explain what the problem is due to and will enable us to treat it? It's, a, it's an issue that they discuss a lot down at Headley Court where they um, treat uh, servicemen with significant injuries. But one of the problems with the definition of MTBI is that PET scans, MRI scans are all negative. Uh, in order to be mild, you're not picking up defined abnormalities when you're doing these, these screens. And there's a, I'm also told by the neurologist that there's a lot of background noise, so they will see some effects, but they don't know whether this is just some, an anomaly, is it significant or not. So at the moment, the RAF psychiatrist who works down at Headley Court has to work on the basis of symptoms and trying to interpret those in terms of sort of existing models of, say, depression or PTSD or anxiety. At the moment, there's no defined treatment strategy for MTBI because, in a sense, there's no... At the moment, we can't use scanning or any other uh, uh, investigations to identify a particular pathology which would then enable you to design a treatment. So I think the treatment now tends to be... Uh, it's based on symptoms, symptoms relief and function. But who knows what will be discovered. Uh, one of your slides showed the incidence of privates and non-commissioned officers. Uh, what is the incidence amongst the officers? It's very difficult to know because the officers' files were destroyed. Officers were treated in separate hospitals. Uh, anecdotal reports at the time suggest that officers break, broke down more at a higher rate than other ranks and NCOs. And it was explained in class terms because it was said officers were better educated, more, more sensitive and carried a heavy burden of responsibility. So people like Frederick Mott and White, who I, I quoted, anecdotally say that we see larger numbers, uh, a larger percentage of officers being treated for shell shock than we do other ranks. But the problem with that is there's a, there's a bias in selection, that when they go to see the medical officer, the medical officer is another officer, so it's two officers talking in a similar language. And to some extent, I think they get more sympathetic treatment, so they're more likely to be referred on for treatment than other ranks. And, of course, there's Moran's view. You know, Lord Moran was a regimental medical officer in the First World War, Royal Fusiliers. He writes The Anatomy of Courage in 1945, in which he says uh, privates, you know, the old farmhands are the best soldiers of all because they don't feel fear. They, they don't have the emotional capacity to understand the dangers of warfare. So they are, they're the best soldiers of all. I mean, an atrocious view, really, but it was the cultural view of the time. 
I have a question. Was there one over here? Somewhere? No, anyway, there. Yes, please. Uh, thank you. The, um, those stills from the Hearst movie, I mean, we, we've all seen the movie at some stage mm -hmm. or another on TV. Those soldiers demonstrated bizarre uh, mm -hmm. movements and tremors and mm -hmm. hiding under the bed and all that sort of thing. Have you seen anything like that from Afghanistan? It's a um, very different war, but I mean, you know... It's, uh, I've only been told of one case, uh, which was told to me by Colonel uh, McAllister, who recently left, he was the uh, senior army psychiatrist, and he'd seen a driver who had some strange movement disorder, and the neurologist did overrule him and said that they felt that this was an organic disorder. When he was referred back to the UK and fully investigated, they couldn't find an underlying uh, lesion, and he eventually found his way to the, to the army psychiatric service. But that's only one case, so they seem to be much less... Uh, common, but the problem is Hearst is sifting. Hearst has thousands and thousands and thousands of cases to choose from, and he's selected 17. There's only 17 in the film, and we, we ourselves have looked at random samples of over 400 cases of shell shock, and we haven't found any of these movement disorders. So I think he's, the, the, he's, he's selected them because they're, they're so good for television. Movement disorders are what you really want. If somebody's sitting there, he's got no sound, so if you're talking about a traumatic experience, he can't convey that. So I think they're a highly selected population, and they're much less common at the time than he suggests. Chris Parker. Uh, the Americans, as I'm sure you know, sorry, I'm over here. Oh. Uh, the Americans at all their major bases in Afghanistan have got these large centers, mm. or had these large centers, where they would extract people out of the line of battle for sometimes several weeks and mm. nurse them in a quiet uh, environment until their symptoms had abated and then put them back into uh, their units. So in a way, w although I could find no evidence for, for doing this, it's almost like you've got a trial with uh, all the other nations being uh, there as comparators. Is there anything mm. coming out of this? Uh, I'm sure you're following it, but is, is there anything developing, anything you can see? The Americans publish a huge amount on MTBI because it, it is one of their identities. For them, it's the signature injury of Iraq and Afghanistan. And we did wonder, because they have committed so much resources to, I, to testing people very close on the battlefield and trying to get measures and follow them up, in a way, from a policy point of view, they're doing the opposite of what they thought you should do in the First World War, because in the First World War, they, they figure out the more you investigate uh, functional disorders, the more you reinforce them the more you convey the message to the soldier there's something seriously wrong. I haven't found it yet, but the next test will find it. And we did wonder, by concentrating so much attention so close to the battlefield, and this may be a naturally recovering disorder, to what extent are you reinforcing the numbers and, in, in, in a sense, um, biasing the outcome of any study? But, but it's, uh, it's such a high priority that I, I can't see anyone... well withdrawing these facilities because it is taken so seriously. Yes, please, yes. Yeah. Just in the front. That, of course, brings you back to the cultural aspect, mm. as the Americans are much more likely to expect psychoanalysis mm. in everyday life anyway. Well, we, we, we think the culture is more, to term, more in terms with the provision of health care. 
um, because the American PTSD rates are significantly higher than the British. So the British are about four and seven, the Americans would be 13, 20, and the, the rates of PTSD rise once a serviceman has left the military, and you can follow them up and they'll get up to 27% of troops once they've uh, left the military and are living in the United States. And there's lots of ways of looking at it. The Americans do longer tours of duty. They do 12 months, sometimes 15 months. They have a younger population. They have a shorter downtime in between tours of duty. But they also have a different health system. And the, the VA benefits attached to a serviceman who has a diagnosis of PTSD are so much better, so much more significant than the benefits if you simply leave the, the American military without a recognized VA-acknowledged disability. And so we tend to argue that the culture, the fact that British servicemen have a free NHS and, and you know, the government's promising that they'll get slightly better service, whereas for the American, and if, if you've joined the American military from a poor, deprived area, you really need, it's, it's enormously in your favour to have a diagnosis of PTSD because you'll get free healthcare, access to education. The benefits are colossal. Um, you, you, would, you would be irrational not to take them. <laughs> well, I think that's a fascinating note on, uh, on which to finish. <laughs> and uh, thank you very much indeed. I've just, uh, uh, we're now going to finish, go, off, go off to lunch, and um, my thanks to the speakers and their patience with the way they've reacted to the little diversion we had this morning, but we have actually made up some, some time, and therefore we could start this afternoon's session, I think, on time, which was supposed to be at 1.15. Could I just set, remind you of the exhibition upstairs, um, but also, which I didn't mention earlier, of the uh, exhibition in the Edward Lumley Hall, um, put together by Brian Morgan uh, in, with, with BAPRIS and showing a lot of the excellent archival material. But thank you uh, once again to all the speakers and thank you all for your patience in coping with the problems of the morning. <laughs>